Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly bar and restaurant podcast. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We have Grover Smith and Ned Elliott from Indie Chefs Week coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined this week by, I mean, if we're being real honest, and don't tell Mary or Nathan, but my favorite co-hosts, Shannon Jones and Felice Sloan from Urban Swank. Ladies, welcome back. How are you? We're fantastic. Hey, 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 hey. Favorites. I see you. Hey, wait. We didn't say it. Just saying. I'm not, I mean, yeah, don't tell... Don't tell the other co-hosts. This is this will be the the check to see whether they actually listen to the episodes. That will be yes. That they're not on. <laughs> right. If I start getting angry text messages, then then we know. Then we we'll know. know. All right, let us get into the news of the week. Huge, huge Houston restaurant news broke Sunday night. Chris Shepard has big changes planned for his restaurants, starting with Underbelly which is going to close in March and relocate to the current space that that had been Postcol and, and more recently had been Jimmy Choo Asian Kitchen. He's going to rename it from Underbelly to UB Preserve. And in its place, he's going to open a steakhouse inspired by one-fifth steak called Georgia James. I mean, we had a fantastic meal at one-fifth steak Mm-hmm. That just happened to be for my birthday. Yep. I have to say, uh, One Fist Steak was probably my favorite restaurant that opened this year. The the one that I most enjoyed dining at. So I am very excited about this. Uh, I'm just wondering how you feel about it. Ditto. I can say ditto yeah. to you, right? Um, because we were recently having a conversation yes, about we steakhouses. Mm-hmm. And... That's it's very I mean, as of before the announcement came. So it seemed like we would have known that. But maybe we did kind of subconsciously know Wishful thinking, that he should maybe. have done it. Right. Yeah. Because it was that good. And it's like, can we have more of that? Well, right. Chris Shepard. <laughs> yeah. Chris Shepard and his business partner, Kevin Floyd, said when when one fifth stake closed that they were in the process of looking for a new location. It just. We couldn't have known then, and, and I don't know when they made the decision, that the right location was the current location of Underbelly. Right. And that it was going to be a steakhouse. Because didn't wasn't it proposed to be a different concept in the space initially? Well, no. I mean, so one-fifth is going to keep rotating its concepts. We'll get to that in a minute. But the idea that one-fifth steak would have a new life as a permanent restaurant and we didn't know it was going to get a new name but the idea that they were going to okay. they were going to take that ethos the seafood towers the the steaks seared on cast iron and of course the baller board the the massive wooden plank loaded down with meat and sides would have a permanent home was was something they had been kind of upfront about that that even as far back as an interview they did with me in March they said yes we like this this concept has proven that it connects with people, that it's been successful, okay. and it's something that we would like to spin off into a permanent space. I think I'm thinking about maybe what initially was the proposed idea for Underbelly. Maybe it's changed a bit. 
than initially planned, but well, yeah. So, so that was the other sort of piece of this puzzle is that back in the summer they announced that Underbelly was going to move to serve more of a seafood menu, not butcher whole animals anymore. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's quite cut on the way that it used no. that the, the way that they had hoped it would, and that if you look at the Underbelly menu, which is posted online every day, it's still pretty beef and pork centric some seafood items but that it it just hasn't captured people's attention uh certainly not in the way that one fifth steak did and certainly not in the way that underbelly did when it first opened i think with the new concept they have a because you know we talk about people embracing change Mm -hmm. so with them changing the new location that would be a perfect time to maybe do what they wanted to do in the summer just because you'll have some people a lot hopefully all the people go over but then you have an opportunity to have a new concept with a new space and then kind of incorporate those changes. But the steakhouse, back yes. to the steakhouse, I am psyched. I'm yeah. ready. I'm ready for the baller board again. That's I'm all ready I'm for the baller board again. <laughs> and you know what? We've had a lot of steakhouse openings. I'm not tired of steakhouses yet. I mean, I don't think that we have too many. I think we've had a couple in the last couple of weeks, and there's some more ideas coming for, for I guess, fall of, of next year. But I love steak. I'm all about more steakhouses and bring it on. Bring on the bowling boards. Well, and, and I'm all about steakhouses that do things the right way, right? right? Searing the steaks on cast iron so they get that really great crust. Sourcing the meat from purveyors that we can feel good about. Uh, for one-fifth steak, that was 44 Farms and Marble Ranch, the Texas Wagyu producer. Creative sides. I mean, I, you know, I love a good wedge. I like shrimp cocktail. But... Give me something a little different. Mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about Doris Metropolitan here in a little bit, uh, which is another steakhouse that's taking some of the conventions and then putting their own spin on that. So, you know, as long as there are chain steakhouses that serve very conventional menus that are still popular, mm-hmm. I am all about locally owned steakhouses that put a Houston spin on things. That's right. Yeah. Put the Houston stank in there. Boom, boom. And then go beyond the traditional steakhouse experience, right? Right. And then as for UB Preserve, which I am calling UBP, are you down with UBP? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm more down with OPP. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> that's, that's TMI. We just, that's, we just learned something about I'm that. Sorry, that's, I'm sorry. Just, that's it just real seemed new. appropriate. Not well, really. you know what? OPP, UBP. But the notion that the things that Underbelly had been doing that seemed revolutionary in 2012, whole animal butchery, pulling from Houston's immigrant communities, sourcing local produce have become kind of standard, right? Yeah. The, the battle has been, has been fought and won. And that now it's time to come up with some new ideas and a fresh perspective mm-hmm. for that restaurant yeah yeah and i think that's what they were trying to do smaller dedicated space yeah 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 that's what they were trying to do i think you know what um as i've already spoken i think they'll be able to do that if that's what they're still focused on but i think that they're gonna have to do that right like it's a new space it's chris i think it'll be successful and that's yeah that's what i want to see them do anyway that's what personally i would like to see and then on a side note, it's interesting to see with UBP up and coming, you know, what is really happening to kind of those seafood driven 
um, restaurants. It seems like they've not been, I don't know. It has been a tough year to own a seafood restaurant. Uh, just since the hurricane, we have seen Salter Seafood Kitchen close, Pesca close, and yeah. Holly's close. And so that is the other piece of this puzzle, which is that the third incarnation of One Fifth was supposed to be a seafood restaurant called One Fifth Fish. They have announced that that is off now off the table, and it's going to be One Fifth Mediterranean pulling. And, and as I saw uh, Phaedra Cook pointed out on Houston Food Finder, Italy, France, and Spain, the current influences for One Fifth are also Mediterranean countries. This is the Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey, Israel, Lebanon, Greece. I am um, I'm probably more excited about one-fifth Mediterranean than I would have been about one-fifth fish. I don't, I don't See, know, I don't E. Know. I mean, I, I, I miss those seafood-centric restaurants. And I'm telling you, they're a dime a dozen here for good ones, for that matter. I was kind of looking forward to seeing what he was going to do with seafood. I would agree with Shanna. I'm, I mean, I'm excited because I like Mediterranean, right. but I was, I'm definitely a little disappointed because I wanted to see what he did with it. Right? Like you know, he's was, just gonna, br- you know, he's gonna bring it. So whatever he does, you're like, okay. If you love seafood, whether you like it simply grilled or you like a little Cajun influence or whatever, however you go, you 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 knew that Chris was gonna. I want him to do for the seafood what he did with the steak. Yes, steakhouse. That's yes. that's that's what I was looking forward to. So just baller board with like a whole salmon. I'm telling just you, yeah, on yes. just, you know, like smoked salmon. Right. You know, give me a little snapper. <laughs> put some mahi. I mean, whatever. But hey, at the end of the day, I'm sure that you know he's made the right decision for what he thinks. He can be successful. Him and Kevin can be successful with. So, you know, we are definite fans either way, and we're looking forward to it as well. And and let's just say that modern Mediterranean and especially Israeli food has become very trendy over the past few years. Zahav in Philadelphia, Shia in New Orleans, Yum. Squirrel in L.A. This this idea that that these flavors. This palette really speaks to something about the way we like to eat, lighter, vegetable-oriented. I'm intrigued, right? We don't, we don't really have a restaurant yeah. like that in Houston right now. I've been sort of waiting for someone to do what I've been sort of calling Shia in Houston. Please. Right. <laughs> we beggeth of bring you. Bring it. <laughs> so bring it, Chris. We're ready. That was like my top meal of, of 2016, hands down. Yeah. We need that. Thank you. And then finally, Hay Merchant will now, well, as soon as when Underbelly closes, Hay Merchant will begin being open for lunch, which as someone who lives in the area and occasionally might be down for uh, a cease and desist burger at, at, at the noon hour might be uh, just, the thing, just the thing that I need. I think, it, like I said, you're, it's been waiting. People will flock there as well. I think it'll do fine. Bring it on. All right, let us move on. Uh, one restaurant uh, that we, we will not be dining at in 2018, uh, Papa Charlie's Barbecue announced that it has closed. Uh, Wesley Jarena, the owner and pitmaster, told me that he just didn't feel like the location in Edo was viable, that it relied too heavily on events. Final Four, Super Bowl, World Series. Restaurant would be packed day-to-day. Nice group of steady customers who were pretty loyal to it, but not enough to really 
make the business uh, successful in the long term. So he's looking for a new location. Let me let me ask you this: There's a lot of there's a lot of good barbecue in Houston now. Papa Charlie's didn't make Texas Monthly's list of the top fifty barbecue joints in the state. Do you think that that is maybe the difference between whether or not it would have still been open? Definitely. Definitely. Um, the location for me, when they when I, they first announced there and I went there, I always knew that the location was going to be challenging. Um, just for whatever reason, just that's where they're yeah. located. But, I mean, the parking sucks. Right. Let's be honest. And, yeah. yeah. Right. But then when you, you get that extra kick from being a top 50, people don't care. Right. They don't yeah. care. They make it work. So I think that's a that's a key difference. And then what about maybe was he now I'd only had gone a couple of times and I remember his menu offering, although he did the barbecue, he was kind of experimental. I don't know if that's a good word. And kind of what he did. So maybe because maybe there was so much focus on other things or I don't know of how well balanced the focus was on barbecue versus his meatloaf, for example. You know, maybe he just wasn't looked at in that right because it just wasn't a complete focus on Texas barbecue. I don't know. Well, he cooks the briskets hot and fast, which allowed him to do one set of briskets for lunch and another set for dinner. But it could be kind of a tightrope. There were times when that brisket was as good as any in the city. And there were times when it was pot roast. And Mm. I think given the overall rise in quality of Houston barbecue in general, that a establishment that couldn't be highly consistent was always going to struggle. That's that's true. And there's a lot of competition, and especially growing, especially in the Houston area now. Right. Like you it's, said, yeah. the, the, that are spot on. You have to, I mean, the same thing we said about restaurants, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's good, but good is not good. You, you can't just be good anymore. Right. Barbecue, same kind of thing. You have to be consistent. consistent. Right. With a capital C. And then in, in slightly better news, uh, Cook Lamb, the former freelance food critic for the Houston Press, announced that she has partnered with Lasco Enterprises to open a fast casual Singaporean restaurant called Sing. Uh, ladies, I know you know Cook. Mm-hmm. Have you had her food at pop-ups? She's been doing a, a whole bunch mm-hmm. of pop-ups around the city for the past couple of years. What do you what do you think about this? I'm so excited. I I did have her food at a pop-up and I was thinking this is what she be on her pop-ups, right? This is what you need to be doing all the time mm-hmm. because she she cooks with so much passion. She um she reminds me of Karen, right? Like I can just feel her passion and her energy and her love mm-hmm. in the food. It's so good. So I'm excited for her. Couldn't have happened to a better person. Yeah, that's awesome. I've, I've only met her a couple of times, but I, I I feel that same positive energy. She's really passionate about her food. And when all else fails, you have to have that to be successful. You have to have that to be consistent. And you have to have that to enjoy and cooking for people day in and day out. So definitely excited about the concept. Interested to see how they're going to, I guess, deploy that kind of fast casual and what that's going to look like. People tend to define that. Differently, sometimes it's counter service. Sometimes, I don't know. It is, it's interesting to see how they're gonna. Yeah, and and the press release touted that there's going to be like a social media component or a, or an attempt to kind of 
engage with diners who are active on social media. I don't quite understand how that's going to work, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you if you Instagram from there, like, if you, you have Instagram to have from there, Instagram we get an egg roll, like, right. I, you know. You have to have an Instagram account to enter. Yeah. Right. I, I don't or you know. have to, you know. It'll be interesting, though. <laughs> we'll, we'll buy your appetizer if you have 5,000 followers. I mean, yeah, hey, that we can, we'll be there every day. Right. And it it could be fun. It, it'll be fun to see how that fun. how they work that out, right? And she's very in tune with her own accounts yeah, into Instagram and, you know, being socially savvy and, you know, the age of the millennial and they're very Instagram focused individuals. So, I mean, it'll be fun to see how it all comes out. I mean, good food attracts good people with good Instagram accounts. So here's the only thing that I'm wondering about. It's going into Oak Forest, 34th and Ella. It's a little bit out of the way. If this were in, if this were in Montrose or on Washington, I'd be, I'd be very optimistic about its prospects. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think there's another restaurant like this in Oak Forest. I, I know it's changing really fast. I know there's a lot of new stuff that's coming, but it makes me just a little bit nervous. Yeah, some of the changes going on in Oak Forest, which are great changes, but like you said, far as restaurant-wise, it's 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 still hard, right? It's still hard when you have a new concept. So um, I wasn't f- quite sure where they were going. So, yeah, I guess I'll suck at second that. Their location is not as prime as some of the other locations, but considering what's happening over there, they could be ahead of the curve. We just We just don't know. And, of course, the owner of Ninja Ramen is opening a pho restaurant uh, closer to the freeway, also on Ella, also in Oak Forest. I, I feel like that's maybe a location that I would be more optimistic about just because it's, it's easier for people to get to. But, you know, again, it's a, it's a growing neighborhood with a lot of new concepts. And, and you know, I, I think if the food is good, it probably won't matter. Right. There I you think, go. Right. People will drive. We'll travel for we'll travel good for food. food. All right, that does it for our News of the Week. We'll be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So for our Restaurants of the Week, I would like to talk about a new restaurant that we all had dinner at last week, Emmeline, the new kind of casual neighborhood restaurant, kind of straddles the border between Montrose and River Oaks. We had... Sam Governale and Chef Dimitri Vutsinis on the show a couple of months ago to talk about the concept, but they were a little bit vague about what the dining experience was going to be like in terms of specific menu items, in terms of the way the menu would be structured. So I, I feel like we went in with, well, let me ask you, what were your expectations before you even sat down in terms of what kind of meal you were thinking we were going to have? I was expecting, I really had no expectations on the menu. I was trying to kind of look at things that other people had seen that did sneak peeks, but I knew I was expecting great service, um, details, you know, like local fresh ingredients, good cocktails, a great experience. I knew just off the bat that I was going to get that. That's what I was expecting. I think I was expecting something and this was not what it ended up being, but a little bit more, um, I don't know, fancy, maybe a little bit more unapproachable, and it ended up being a lot more approachable. I, I don't know what I was expecting, but, you know, knowing Sam, 
not saying that he's all bougie and stuff, but, you know, kind of just saying that I just expected it to not be this kind of warm vibe. And it was. Yeah, I I mean, we should we should say it is gorgeous inside. Absolutely. It's yeah. But without being like showy, it just feels comfortable. It feels lived in. It feels a lot older than being brand new. And I like that there's like different sections, mm-hmm. right? Like we sat kind of in the in the dining room that's towards the right, um, that feels a little more intimate. The the bar is big and open and kind of lively. And then there's that sort of patio room off to the side that it's maybe, you know, like more social, like right. more uh, like just having a, a bottle of wine right. and crushing some apps instead of. Uh, Sitting down for a full meal. Right. There's a and lot like, going yeah. on in the space, right? When we got there, right. I was like, wow. It had the energy. It had it going on like it had been there for a minute. And, yeah. of course, Sam, you know, that's what he does. Right. So I would expect nothing less. But it was a lot going on, a lot of moving parts, but it never felt too loud. Yeah. It never felt too crowded. And to your point with all these little different sections, it, but it all worked together very well. You felt mm-hmm. comfortable. You didn't feel like, okay, I'm not supposed to be here. You just felt like you felt home welcome. and welcome. Yeah. It was very, very cohesive. One of my favorite areas, and we were talking about this at dinner, was the area that Sam calls the market, which is, I think, a table of four that's up at a counter where they are um, cutting the meats and the cheeses. It's it's a very, it, it definitely stands out amongst the other areas that we saw. It's definitely kind of a place to be, perfect around lunchtime, very bright, very, very like going into a market and getting fresh che- meats and cheeses. So it was, but it, it but it made sense. Even though there were, to me, like five different distinctive areas, it was very cohesive. Yeah, and I, I will say my expectation for the food was that it was going to be sort of Italian-y, and it's not really. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we, had, a, we had a couple of pasta dishes, but... You know, I feel like pasta is included on the menu kind of in the same way that that State of Grace includes it, where right. it's it's a part of what they do, but it doesn't define the restaurant. And I, I think that really appealed to me. I will say your lobster pasta was probably the best thing we ate. Oh, my gosh. With the, yeah, it was fire roasted pasta mm-hmm. and it had um, some broccoli in it. Um, it was the squid, squid ink. It one of the chefs said, "No, I'm sorry." The um, waitress was like, "It seems like it may be kind of heavy," and I was like thinking, "Yeah." In my mind, once I read it on the menu, I pictured how it was gonna look. It never happens like that, but in my mind, I always picture how my dish is gonna look. And it came out; it looked exactly like that. It was beautiful. It tastes. Um, I think chef said he thought about it in the spring. But it fits right now just because it's it's so fresh, it's so filling, and it I, w- I was just very happy. I was th- I thought about it actually the next day. I was thinking about it. That's that's always a good meal to me when I'm like, mm, I wonder what my dish would be doing right now. <laughs> you know, because I'm like, I, I, I want it again. It, it was it was delicious. And everything seemed very well thought out. It it wasn't like there was a bunch of one dimensional dishes. You know, there was definitely stacking of flavors. I mean, Eric and your soup, that broth was Kind of yeah, amazing. The Chipino with the, yeah. with just beautifully cooked seafood, just loaded down with langoustine and shrimp and mussels and clams. Uh, and Shanna, I really liked your steak with the chimichurri. Yeah. 
those fries. I mean, the steak with the chimichurri, perfectly prepared, you know, simply presented with the fries on the side. I think there was something. Oh, and there was that one of the thing the waitress told us is that they have their daily um, their daily grill, I believe, where you can get right. either a meat or a fish. I thought was that item where maybe if you are not as vent- as as adventurous in food yeah. and wanting to venture out and get something that may not be as uh, known to you, they had this simply grilled item on the menu where you can just get a their fish of the day or a fillet, for example, simply grilled in two sides. I and think. I think it's two sides maybe with your meal. I thought that was a great option. Yeah, we had a we had a couple of appetizers too. We started with uh, an eggplant caponata. I thought was a, a very classic version of that dish. I, I'm more curious to hear what you thought of the cheese fondue because I think I think y'all liked that a little better than I did. Yeah, I don't think you were a f- yeah, huge I was, fan. Shanna loved it. I loved it. I had different expectations Patience. for it. Okay. Like, remember, I was yeah, like, you were saying that. I just you were thinking maybe it was. I, yeah, I was thinking. I guess it would be different things for the fondue i yeah i just wish i once i saw it i'm like mm, i wish i would have gotten the burrata right like that's but it was good though but i just was i could have just drank the cheese <laughs> i mean had had you guys not been there honestly like i mean and actually since we're so close i probably should did it anyway since you guys were clearly not as much fans of it as i was <laughs> i would have just had it not been you know under fire i would have flipped that bad boy over and drank this drank the cheese straight from style. yeah i'm just saying that's how i roll the cheese to me, I mean, all all the stuff, the breads and the apples and all the in the, I think it was prosciutto. I'm not sure what type of Italian meat it was, but whatever was on the side, that was secondary to that cheese. But if you're a cheese lover, you'll love it. If you're not a big cheese lover, or if you're kind of a cheese lover, go with the burrata maybe. But I loved it. Uh, and I will say, you know, Sam is a is a very busy guy, and and obviously he has uh, a major influence on the wine list. But we got. Really great advice from their sommelier, Lindsay Huntsman, who has come to Houston from California. We had three very different dishes. We have three very different palates when it comes to wine. She sort of chatted us up, got a sense of what we did and didn't like. And then I think she nailed all three. Nailed it. Like, (laughs) I was, wow. It was. I think you even took pictures of your wine. Yeah, I was like, can you bring the (laughs) bottle back? I need this. She's kind of what you said. She spent a little time with each one of us, and her pairings were spot on. So um, in addition to, that's a part of the experience as well, mm-hmm. right? Like it was just seamless. And she, I watched her working the room, going around to tables, and that's what she was doing. I, I just, they hit, he hit it, they hit it out the park with that one. Yeah. And then uh, one of my favorite pastry chefs in town, Alyssa Dole, is handling their, their mm-hmm. breads, their pastries. Mm-hmm. We had some outstanding desserts. Yes. She is a rock star. Um, We had like five desserts, right? We did. We we had an espresso cake. Yeah, we had an espresso cake. We had a wedding cake. We had a panna cotta. The banana. And the banana split. The banana split. Oh, my God. Homemade ice cream. Let me tell you something about the split. The caramel corn on top. Yep. And it has (laughs) some kind of like... I was trying to describe it to Eric. When you were, I was saying, oh, it, it tastes, the the menu is explicit in what it is. But to me, it was like, oh, is this like a take on Captain Crunch mixed with like praline? I don't know what it was, but it was a nice <laughs> texture. <laughs> it was a nice texture. It's added. more like poppycock. Okay. Um, that know, sounds strange. Throwback to <laughs> oh, yes. the, the canned caramel popcorn. Mm-hmm. That- okay. Okay. Really? Yeah, that's, that's, that's new for me. All right. And then. 
Felice, I, I did just want to talk to you briefly about uh, Doris Metropolitan, the new steakhouse that mm-hmm. replaced Trinity in River Oaks. Um, a little bit of an unusual path to the steakhouse business for the owners. You had a butcher shop in Tel Aviv that evolved into a restaurant. They sold it. They moved to Costa Rica, opened a steakhouse there. That's the first location of Doris Metropolitan. It was such a hit that they opened a second location in New Orleans. And now this one in Houston, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, at Eric Sandler, as you should, you will see, you you undoubtedly saw the picture of the dry-aging room with the chandelier in it. Yes. Kind of a signature it's design so sexy. feature. That's how they, that's how seriously they take their meat. Meat is sexy there. Yeah. Um, so, Felice, let me just ask you, what did you think of your meal at Doris Metropolitan? I thought it was really good. Um, I had the, so the sides, I think that they're lacking on the sides. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I had mushroom. I just did mushrooms um, as a side because I got a 28-ounce steak. I did the bone-in, bone-in ribeye cap off. And so it was very, really no dry aging. I should I should have went dry age. However... That was, it was amazing. And then I started with a tomato salad, which where you get into the roots. They had the mm-hmm. tomatoes prepared five different ways with Moroccan olives, um, with egg yolk. So I thought my meal was solid. It was very good. I look forward to going back. And the cocktail program, I just did a simple cocktail, but they had some pretty interesting cocktails as well. Yeah, and I... I went with uh, three other guys, so we were we brought big appetites. They we were talking about the baller boards at at one fifth. Um, what they do, they call it a butcher's board, and it's just a it's a wooden block uh, that they bring out with some burning sage and a little bit of bone marrow. And I'm going to uh, sidestep the implication of what it means to burn sage in a space that had another restaurant in it before. But you get to choose what steaks they put on it. So we got a porterhouse and a ribeye. And the classified cut, which is the ribeye cap, the spinalis. Um, just an incredibly beefy, incredibly flavorful steak. And and honestly, like a pretty good deal. I think it's like 45 bucks. Um, when I, not if I go back to Doris Metropolitan, when I go back to Doris <laughs> Metropolitan, I think that's what I'm going to order. I, it, I don't necessarily need to get, you know, a 16, 20 ounce ribeye to feel satisfied. Sure. Uh, and then the other the other dish that I really liked is they have this beetroot appetizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hollow out a whole beet. They stuff that with a blend of six cheeses, and then they roast that in the oven so the cheese gets all gooey. Slice the table side. Cheese oozes out onto the beet. Just an incredibly uh, satisfying twist on what would otherwise be a pretty conventional um, beet salad. So, so that's what pretty interesting the what sides? they talk about with the side with their well, I thought the sides seems like they spent a lot of time on their appetizers, right? Because mm-hmm. the appetizers, when you look at it, I was torn. I wanted to try that appetizer, the the one that I got, and maybe two more. So I was excited <laughs> thinking, Whoo, I can't wait to get to the sides and there's only like four sides, five or six sides. Like there was no potato dish so on there. No, they have truffle <laughs> fries. They don't right. have Baked potatoes or roasted no, potatoes. Right. They don't have mac and cheese. They don't right. have cream it was, spinach. Right. It's very much the meat and and the appetizers. So I think for Houston, I think that they may want to add a couple more sides. Okay. Um, but you know, the appetizer I think they may want to do what they did with the appetizers with the sides. Maybe one or two of them. Just did you, you get know. the did you get the breads, by the way? 
Oh gosh, I totally forgot about that. Those Ooh, breads. You didn't tell me about the breads. Yeah, I forgot because when they they were so good, the breads were insane. Yeah, there's like a focaccia <laughs> style loaf with onions baked into it, so it's a little bit like a bialy. That may be one of the better pieces of bread. That was my favorite piece. Actually, yeah, that was it's phenomenal. <laughs> it was well, crazy. clearly, um, I need to go. Yeah, we need to uh, go back. Yeah, we yeah, I need to go with you. And so I want to get yeah. the baller board because it was just me. So I, I was like, okay, well, I'm very, for the you know, we, yeah, no, we were, we were four dudes. So we got, right. they're like, you can get yeah. a board and we'll bring it out on fire. It's like, all right, <laughs> okay, bring us the, bring us the flaming board. Talking so about Instagram worthy. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I think that does it for our restaurants of the week. Uh, Shannon Felice, tell us, tell the listeners where they can find y'all online. You can find us at UrbanSwank.com. You can find us at UrbanSwank on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and really just Google Urban Swank, and then we're all over that thing. All right. Thank you very much. And I will be right back with Grover Smith and Ned Elliott. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Ned Elliott and Grover Smith. We primarily know Ned as the now former chef owner of Foreign and Domestic in Austin. Grover has had a wide-ranging career in the culinary world, including stints as the general manager at Bernadine's and the Passing Provisions. Uh, but this week, they are joining me to discuss Indie Chefs Week, a traveling culinary festival that brings in top talent from across the country. They'll be in Houston, January 5th through 7th at Riel. Uh, I'm going to take you guys one at a time. Grover, hello, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, we're actually, I don't mean to correct you right off the bat, but we're actually holding this at a recently closed restaurant location in Midtown that I don't want to kind of let loose yet. But uh, Ryan is acting as one of our hosting chefs, but scheduling-wise, it didn't work out, so we're doing it in a different space. Okay. So it was... Uh, Partially part of what's cool about the event is having kind of a, a large open kitchen in order to facilitate like that back and forth between the guests and the chefs. Um, and this space was perfect for that. So, All right. And Ned Elliott, hello. Welcome. How are you? What's going on, man? Ned, let me start with you. You developed this idea, what, like four or five years ago? Yeah. Yeah. What was the, what was the motivation for creating Indie Chefs Week? Um, you know, the motivation was twofold. Um, on the first part of it was sort of um, wanting to get together um, a bunch of chefs that were quote unquote like minded, meaning, um, you know, that we don't really have any chefs that own, you know, 400 seat restaurants that are doing, you know, that have a restaurant, you know, in California and one in Vegas and things like that. Um, and having, you know, sort of small homegrown talent, um, you know, be propped up and give them, give them a spotlight. Um, and sort of shine that light on them and say, hey, listen, these are people that I, you know, um, not only look up to, but these are people that I think that, you know, you in the, uh, in the general public should actually know of. Um, and then the other part of it was sort of, you know, sort of a, the antithesis of what you get when you go into a food and wine festival um, that where, you know, if you go to a food and wine festival and, uh, you know, Justin Yu is putting something up, you're not going to see that dish ever at, at Oxheart, you know, that he's not going to be able to produce what he does in that in that kitchen for 40 people a night or 60 people a night for 1500 people and we wanted to give the chefs a platform to say hey listen 
don't worry about what you do. Don't worry about what it is. You know, there are some, you know, limitations on what we're going to actually give you back money-wise um, for, you know, each night that you cook. But we want to see what you cook, you know, and, and go for it. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about Indie Chefs Week is that you you cover the expenses, right? You're, you're covering the travel. You're covering the yes. food. Um, and, and I think some of these food festivals, and I, I certainly know some of the some of the local events position these as marketing opportunities for chefs, but they expect them to front the costs. Well, and to elaborate too on what he was talking about, a lot of when he founded this was around the same time that a lot of restaurants started using Twitter, uh, excuse me, Twitter as like their primary form of uh, public relations. Uh, And a lot of these people that work in these kitchens, they work long hours. Everybody's familiar with that, that facet of the business, but it was to create an opportunity for them to be able to leave their kitchen without having to pay for it themselves, uh, to have a little bit of a break, to make food representative of what they cook in their own kitchens versus like what he was saying with the food fest, which are, you know, 1,500 bites, which makes it hard to do with the same type of composed dish you do in a sit-down environment, um, and just to make it fun for them as well. Uh, and I think that we were tired of seeing the same people over and over and over and over, um, not that to say that they aren't talented in their own way or don't deserve that, but there's other people out there that deserve to have some sort of publicity show, uh, shown their way. So you've done this in Austin a few times. You took it to L.A. and then New York. Uh, Why did you decide that Houston was right for the next edition of Indie Chefs Week? I mean, I think Houston's just the the natural progression. Um, You know, myself with having foreign and domestic for the last seven and a half years and then just selling it recently, um, I've always looked to Houston as like sort of would be the next next place to quote-unquote expand to. Um, You know, and then also with this, it's just, you know, the, the... the amount of diversity and talent that is here, you know, just lends itself to, okay, why are we, you know, looking Denver, Chicago, Nashville, Memphis, Miami, New York, you know, all over the place when two hours down the road, there's Houston, Texas, you know, with all, with all of this going on. Yeah. I, I feel like there was a period of time, maybe, uh, 2012, 2013, when it seemed like every Houston food person I knew that went to Austin ate at foreign and domestic and then you would just bury them in food and you were kind of it was kind of like uh it was That's kind of like a, a houston restaurant that was just just a little farther past katie just keep driving um yeah yeah i mean definitely I, there's probably from when we opened in 2010 to 2014 then probably 20 percent of our our guests would be from houston you know on a on a weekly basis um you've lined up a a, a real solid slate of houstonians to participate uh, as a, as I as we said earlier, uh, Ryan Lachane, the chef owner of Riel, uh, a former podcast guest, Jillian uh, Bartolome, the former uh, executive chef at Common Bond, now working at Aki, uh, Patrick and Aaron Fijis, who are working on Fijis Barbecue that's going to open next year, Lyle mm-hmm. Bento of Southern Goods, and Justin Yu of Theodore Rex and Better Luck Tomorrow. How did you sort of identify these Houston chefs? And, and is this a complete roster of locals or are you still working on a couple other folks? Well, as far as the roster being complete or not, we do like to kind of add people here and there as we go, depending on what our needs are. And I do think that there'll be some additions. There's one in particular that we've agreed to have come that we're not going to announce for a week or two uh, that I think will be pretty exciting for people. But um, no, it's not set. Uh, there will probably be a few more added to that list. And then Ned, how did you how did you decide on 
How did you choose to invite these particular Houston chefs to participate? You know, one of the things since we've been doing this for five years was sort of um, trying to get a lot of, um, you know, um, the chefs that I'm, I'm quote unquote buddies with, you know, that I, I really look up to from Lyle to Lashane um, and Justin Yu, um, you know, as, as prickly as he can be, you know, we really wanted to get him, you know, to do the event. Um, but yeah, you know, it, I think that, you know, one of the things for us, you know, in moving forward, even past this event, you know, it's just digging deeper and deeper and deeper to see who we can find, you know, and that's always been sort of the thing is that, Hey, you're driving down, you know, whatever it is, I 10 and you're in the middle of Alabama and you find like the best chicken fried steak you've ever had is, you know, extending a hand to that person, that chef that's cooking that and like, Hey, you do this and this is outrageously, you know, awesome. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, tweezer food, you know, it's just what is great food and people that we feel are not getting, you know, enough attention. Yeah. And I, I was skimming the list of the, the chefs who are not from Houston. Uh, I have to admit that, that I didn't see a lot of familiar names. Can you just, are there maybe two or three that you're particularly excited about or, or who are new to Indie Chefs Week that, that, um, yeah, I mean, like should motivate people to buy tickets to these dinners. You know, really excited to have um, Justin Severino do it again um, from Pittsburgh. He has a place Cure and also another place uh, Morcia. Um, then there's Brittany Anderson um, from Virginia. She has a couple of places up there. Um, Renner Pass and uh, Metzger Bar and Butchery in Richmond. Christine Rivera um, from uh, San Diego with a uh, Galaxy Taco. Um, I think it's always fun. Is you know, and also a, another uh, San Diegoan, or is that? I guess that's how you say it. Um, another person from San Diego, uh, Claudette um, Wilkins, um, who's on the, actually the um, this season of uh, Top Chef Colorado. But um, you know, I, I think it's always fun too to to bring in people from around the country. You know, especially into the, when we do it in Texas, that are cooking um, modern Mexican food. You know, is, is to see. You know, that, that's one of the things we had uh, Carlos Salgado several years ago from Taco Maria and. Um, People were just floored with what he was doing from, you know, um, his tamal um, that he did of like burnt strawberry tamal to um, his agua chile that he did one night as well. And we're just like, whoa, you know, and I, you know, that's one of the facets of it is being like, hey, listen, if you, you know, if you build it, they will come or if you support it, it'll grow, you know, and especially in, in Texas where and, and in Austin where there isn't too much modern Mexican cooking going on, you know. And it's sort of looked at, looked upon as like, oh, well, that's too expensive with that sort of, you know. Yeah, why don't, why don't we get chips and salsa with it? Right. That sort of ethnocentrist BS, you know, that comes along with uh, what people think is, you know, Mexican food. Um, it's like, hey, you can go out and, and do this and support. Yeah. And I, I will say for, obviously, the, the first two nights are great because you get uh, a dish prepared by each of the participating chefs and, and that's really fun. But I, I will say I got to go to the uh, closing night dinner in Austin earlier this year where the chefs team up in pairs and collaborate. And it's just, it's just so much fun, uh, especially sitting at the counter as a diner to watch everybody jumping in and plating. And the, just the energy in the room is really terrific. I, I think you guys have created something really special with these meals and and I, I I you know I do kind of want to encourage the reason you're you're on the show today is because I I do kind of want to make sure that that especially this audience which is 
I mean, if you're listening to me talk about food for an hour a week, you're obviously pretty committed to the cause. So. <laughs> uh, just how have you sort of fostered that camaraderie? Because I, I think it really is what makes these so special. There's the first part is, is I mean, I think that the people we invite by design are people who have fantastic attitudes. You know what I mean? And they're, they're very much team players. They enjoy kind of getting these environments and we try to make this fun. I think that's one of the, main things that's different from other events of, of its ilk or type. Um, and then I think a lot of it, too, is kind of the interactive factor that goes with it, especially if you're on the counter, which we do have. I think each night we have 11 seats. We've sold quite a few of them. But, I mean, you're right there within a foot or two. Videos and photos are definitely encouraged. You'll notice no matter where you're seated, there's not a bad seat in the house, especially where we're doing it this time. Um, you'll see these individual conversations going on or these I mean, like many collaborations to where, you know, you see things happening in real time that fought, we try to foster the creativity um, that we literally, besides, like you said, budgetary constraints because of these dinners, um, there's no restriction on what they make. And nine times out of 10, it turns into this amazing progression of food that was never planned in the beginning. Do you know what I mean? Because they bring their dishes. If we need to make adjustments, Ned will get back to them or I'll get back to them and tell them, hey, we need to lighten it up either on the front end or back end. But for the most part, it's whatever they want to make um, within those guidelines and it's it's crazy. I mean, it's turned into something to where, um, like, it's almost for me personally, it's addicting because, you know, this environment is so much fun and everybody's having a blast and you make a bunch of new friends and it's become this huge brother and sisterhood of chefs that have taken part in it. Um, and just to be in that environment and how much fun everybody's having, it's like a little mini vacation for everyone, uh, and it's just an amazing experience. And it's one of those things where every guest that's ever done it, we've had maybe one or two complaints. Um, <laughs> And everybody else is like, oh, my God, this was the most amazing thing I've ever attended. And not to. Yeah, I mean, I got, to meet, I got to meet Octoman. I mean, I've you know, <laughs> certainly one of the highlights of, of my 2017. Well, excluding Your Octoman, career. which will. We'll, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's just it's cool. And, you know, we we try to make sure that it's an environment to where, you know, the format basically is we get up there and talk for a minute to thank everyone for coming and explain the format of the dinner. And then every time a dish comes out as it's being delivered to the tables, the chefs come up and they talk about themselves, where they're from, the restaurant, the food they made for, you know, the guests that night. Um, and then there's a kind of a Q and a session almost it's impromptu or not very, or informal, but you know, you get to talk to the chefs, you get to ask them questions, you get to give them real time feedback. And it's one of the rare instances, I think that a chef is, is happy to get that type of feedback. It's not in the middle of a crazy service for them. You know, this is a fun thing for them. It's not in their own restaurant. And so it just creates this, all this kind of communication that as a guest, you normally don't get to experience, especially if you don't work in the industry, you don't get to kind of look behind the curtain or peek behind the curtain. And in this uh, circumstance you do. Um, and I just think it's something that everyone for the most part enjoys. Uh, and I think that people will be pleasantly surprised that decide to, to come and attend the dinner. Yeah. And the, I, I think just, sort of following up on that thought, the atmosphere is sort of one of like appreciation, right? Like it's, um, you know, people go out to restaurants for a whole bunch of different reasons. And, and, you know, if, uh, if a restaurant doesn't meet your expectations for whatever reason, then it can be very upsetting. But when you're going there specifically to like eat food prepared by chefs that you would have to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to experience, like you're, you're down, like you're, you're, you're on the team. Yeah. And it's going to be, a, and it's a wide range of styles and techniques and different cuisines. And I think that's what's kind of neat is that even if, say, one or two of the dishes aren't normally your favorite ingredient, it may be prepared in a way that you've never tried before because I haven't traveled to that region or had food of that style. Um, and then it's so different across the board that there's definitely going to be three or four or five things on that, you know, 10 or 11 course meal 
that's going to blow your mind or at least be extremely satiating. And um, I think that's what makes it so much fun. Is like you like you said, you're you're basically traveling to a bunch of restaurants at a much lesser expense, uh, all in one evening. Yeah, and you said that this has become kind of an addictive uh, experience for you. Do you have? I mean, do you see this as like a like a once a quarter thing that hops from city to city, or or how do you want to grow it? So last year was the first year, or this year, excuse me, twenty seventeen was the first year we tried to really take it on the road and do more than one event. Um, they had gone to Costa Mesa and done it in Orange County at Carlos Salgado's restaurant, who we were discussing earlier, Taco Maria, in twenty fourteen. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time we kind of took it on the road and then started learning the logistics of it. It can be kind of a pain to put together, but. Um, yeah, this year was kind of a litmus test for us to see how things went, trying a bunch of different cities, and we learned a lot. And also kind of a lot of what we use to underwrite this is partners, like different, you know, food and beverage-related partners. And so kind of getting our feel for that. And I think that the current iteration of four or five events a year plus some um, supplemental things, there's some things I'm working on for Houston that I'm happy to update you with that's kind of outside of the normal dinners. But I think five to six a year plus some extra stuff on the side is kind of what the long-term intent is going into 2018. So Houston will be the first one in the first week, and then hopefully every two months or so throughout the year. So 150 bucks gets you in the door. Does that include... Uh, free wine. Free wine. If TABC is listening. It is free wine. Does that include <laughs> the tip too? Uh, it does. Everything's included. So basically when you purchase, there's actually, it adds a service charge of 18%, which covers our awesome front of house staff that we put together that I think... A lot of people will recognize as they come to the dinners. I know you will, Eric. You'll probably recognize every single one of them. Well, yeah, I, I saw Chelsea Thomas, uh, your old cohort from Bernadine's, yep. is posted on Facebook, so I know she's on the team. And uh, Sarah Keck is taking part. She's going to help out a little bit, uh, David Keck's wife. Um, and we've got a few other folks, and uh, so that takes care of this. So it's basically $150 plus this 18% service charge and taxes only on the ticket price, and it varies from there. We also have what we call a quote-unquote VIP experience uh, for the hardcore gourmands that you get to arrive a little bit early, do a meet-and-greet with all the chefs, eat a little bit of extra food, get some photos. You literally can walk back in the kitchen if you want. It's open. You can go wherever you want. Um, And the chefs will be there and happy and ready to talk to you. Uh, And then those include seats on the counter. Um, I think for Friday, Saturday, those are $195 plus tax and gratuity. And then for Sunday, the big blowout, it's $250. So they're a little bit more expensive, but I do think there's a lot of value there. And for people that are into food and want to peek behind the curtain, it's a great experience. And certainly this is the uh, holiday shopping season. Uh, We have to be (laughs) taping this uh, on the first night of Hanukkah. Uh, I know I would like to get uh, a couple of seats in the Chef's Week uh, along with my uh, latkes. That'd be really nice. Or or, uh, maybe a little expensive for a stocking stuffer, but but certainly a a really nice Christmas present for, for people who are culinarily minded. Yeah, and you can find it at IndieChefsWeek.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-C-H-E-F-S-W-E-E-K.com. Just click on the Houston link. All the details are there. All the chefs. Like I said, we'll be adding a few more, uh, a couple of bigger names I think people will be excited about. And, yeah, we'd love to see you there. Please come say hello to both of us. Um, And Ned, of course, um, I can't have you in the studio and on the show without, (laughs) without talking a little bit about foreign and domestic yeah, yeah. Um, I, why don't we just kind of start with the decision you made earlier this year to uh, sell the Austin restaurant to two mm-hmm. of your uh, former chefs? How did how did you make that? Or why did you make that decision? And and I mean, I think the deci- the decision 
came um, from a couple of angles. One of just, you know, sort of outgrowing the space, you know, after a year um, open was, you know, like, oh, okay, the space is so tiny um, that we had definitely outgrown it. Um, and then, too, was sort of, you know, after being open for seven and a half years, sort of seeing what um, the limitations that we had in that space um, were and knowing that and knowing that they were never going to change and saying, okay, well, you know, how do you get out from under this? Meaning, okay, how can I, you know, expand to back home in Cincinnati to Houston and things like that, um, you know, and, and still trying to work on a, another project in Austin as well. Um, and it was just like, you know, selling was the, the way to go. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, with, with Nathan Lemley, you know, a Houstonian or, well, from Katy, but basically Houston. I mean, we'll, we'll take credit for that. That's fine. The, the Houston Metroplex or whatever you want to call it is so, so vast anyways. I mean, you got to include that, but you know, he's, he worked for me for the first three years that we were open. Um, the last four years, he's been the, uh, the chef at uh, Parkside for Sean Serkeel, you know, and it's in, you know, great hands, you know, and I'm, I'm excited that, you know, he and then his, his girlfriend, uh, Sarah Heard, you know, um, got the money together and bought it. I think that for people that have been to Foreign and Domestic the first couple of years, it's probably more reminiscent of that, more offcuts, things like that, uh, which I think a lot of the people that visited from Houston really enjoyed. So I think checking it out again for anybody in Houston or Austin is definitely recommended. And then I know you want to, as you said, you want to grow, you want to bring Foreign and Domestic to Cincinnati and to Houston. Um, where are you with that? I mean, do you, do you have... I mean, I had a space lined up in Bel Air, um, that, but I just think after the hurricane and with, you know, talking with a bunch of chefs here and how everybody is very much hurt, hurting, I didn't, you know, the, the plans for that are to push it back a little bit, you know, and rather than being open first quarter of 2019, like, why don't we push it back a year, 18 months? Um, I don't want to really, you know, to me, it's like, I don't want to be a carpetbagger. I don't want to go in and I don't want people to have to decide, hey, should we go check out this new restaurant? Or should we check out the restaurant that's been here for two, three years that's, you know, not necessarily quote-unquote struggling, but yeah, you know, after the hurricane and there's so many people, you know, um, you know with, with different things that have happened, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we can, we can hold off, I can hold off for a little while, you know, and get other things going um, and then do that. I know we had, uh, we had Graham Laborde on the show a few weeks ago. He's working with yeah, Ronnie yeah. Killen. He said they're kind of... They're, they're kind of biding their time, too. They kind of want to see what closes. They kind of want to, you know, that maybe uh, maybe the right spot or the, you know, a desirable location will emerge. It's, it's a little bit murky right now. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that's a, all more reason, you know, for, you know, people, please go support small local restaurants. You know, I mean, if you're doing well, you're at 8%, maybe 10% profit margin. If you're running average, you're at 2 to 3 maybe even 4 you know, and that it's, it's tough. It's tough, you know, and especially this time of year, you have holiday parties and all of that stuff that draw people away from going to restaurants, you know, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, you know. And as great as the Astros winning the World Series which was, which I enjoyed thoroughly, it definitely didn't help the restaurants after, you know, being closed <laughs> God knows how long during Hurricane Harvey. So definitely, I agree, go support them as much as you can. Um, but ideally, do you still think Bel Air, kind of West Houston or... or I mean, I love the Bel Air um, location that we had found just from the standpoint of it was just a blank canvas and to that, that area is so underserved, um, you know, and that, that for me is like one of the, the big things of, um, you know, going into some area that's, you know, underserved 
um, you know, in, in, in trying to do something and create something positive there rather than, hey, everybody's always going to be on Westheimer, everybody's going to be in the Galleria and, you know, I guess the Heights now as well, you know, it's... Yeah, okay. I mean, you were a little bit ahead of the curve with F&D being kind of in North Austin. It seems like people have started to catch up to you there now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the population pockets have definitely, you know, changed since when we first opened up and first looked at that space in, in 2009, um, you know, to now, which is, is wild to think about, you know, and just the growth that's happened in that city, you know, is, 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 is tremendous. Um, it doesn't seem like it's going to slow down anytime soon. I mean, there were more restaurants opening there than there were in Houston over that five or six year period. And we're talking about a population that's a sixth the size of Houston. Um, yeah. So it exploded. Um, and then, so are, are things in Cincinnati a little more firmed up? I mean, do you have a... Yeah, I'll be uh, signing a lease by the end of the year, um, going to permit by the end of the year and all that good stuff. We have we have a space picked out and, and all of that. So, you know, excited. Hopefully be open July of 2018. Um, and then there's a project in um, Austin, hopefully to do and be open there in um, February, March of 2019. Hopefully, you want you want to tell us what that is? I can't. I can't. Nothing's firm on that yet. So, <laughs> um, and then Grover, what about you? Uh, you seem. Are you kind of devoted to Indie Chefs Week right now? Or are you? Yeah, looking I mean, for I'm, a new opportunity. I'm at the moment just trying to follow this to where it leads. Um, we're kind of on the precipice of a bunch of stuff we've been working on the entire year to help solidify, you know, our ability to do this, to be able to have actually an organization doing it versus just me. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at. Uh, Houston is kind of the last, technically it's our last event of 2017, even though it's in 2018 because of uh, the hurricane, but um, there's going to be a lot of changes kind of starting with Houston and then afterwards, as far as how we do it. And then, like I said, it'll be a little bit more frequent. There'll be some other kind of auxiliary events that aren't quite the full three-night experience. Um, but we're still kind of figuring that out. But getting close. So, All right, gentlemen. I think, uh, I think we have reached the point in the interview that I like to call the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just nice. to say the, uh, the first thing that comes to mind. Ned, I'm going to start with you. What is your favorite ingredient? Uh, Spanish paprika, pimenton. Grover, I know you're not a cook, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I'm going to go with butter. Solid. Uh, Grover, what's the first concert you ever went to? This is embarrassing, but I think the first concert I went to was my dad got free tickets to Rod Stewart. Nice. In the front row. <laughs> Ned? Um, I went with my two older sisters to, uh, what was it, Quiet Riot, and... Um, Gosh, what's the other band? Um, that time, D. Snyder was the Twisted front. Sister. Yeah, and Twisted Sister. Cincinnati Gardens. Very nice. Uh, Grover, who's your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? It's kind of hard. I know this is a bandwagon thing, but I, as a kid, it was always Hakeem Olajuwon, I guess. Like, we had season tickets when I was, I grew up in Houston, and we had season tickets then. Uh, but it's hard not to like Jose Altuve. <laughs> Uh, pretty amazing. No, that's, he's that's incredible. A, it's yeah. uh, obviously a new thing and definitely a fair weather fan type answer, but it's pretty incredible that guy's been able to accomplish that much. Flags fly forever, so I'm I'm down. <laughs> Ned, do you do you have a favorite Houston sports figure? Um, I mean I'm from Cincinnati, so we we have you know going back to the days of Nolan Ryan and um what's his name Mike Scott. You know you're like oh fuck like come on guys <laughs> or like Jerry Glanville the House of Pain. Chris yeah. Dishman, those scumbags. So, 
Do you, do you have a favorite <laughs> Cincinnati sports figure? Oh, Pete Rose, dude. Got it. Or Eric sports. Davis, number forty-four. Um, Ned, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a grocery McDonald's store. fillet of fish, without the cheese. I can't. I can't eat American cheese. It makes me gag. But oh my goodness, I love that. Or just socket, sausage uh, biscuit with egg. Grover, it'd have to be a tie between Popeyes, spicy. And uh, I miss P. Terry's a lot, which I don't think you like P. Terry's. You're not but. even going to say Whataburger? Are you a Texan? You're not I am a Texan. Texan. I am a Texan, Texan but it's, it's either Popeye's Wait, or P. Terry's. Yeah, oh. Indeed, I was. Oh. Uh, uh, outed. A uh, University of Texas graduate that was born in Oklahoma City. I know. <laughs> uh, and then, Grover, where's your favorite place in town to get a taco? Uh, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that I haven't found a favorite yet, to be honest. Since I've moved here, I've been back two years. Yeah, that's probably going to be my most embarrassing answer. Ned, where do you go in Austin for your favorite taco? Um, uh, Fruta de Feliz on uh, Manor is awesome. I miss Tamale House in Austin. Yeah, Tamale House is really good, and they have the Tamale House East, and then they also have the, the people that were working at the one up by uh, Foreign Domestic now just opened like a taco co-op somewhere around there. Nice. I'm not sure, so yeah. I guess I'd have to say Tamale House. You could go have breakfast in college for 89 cents. Good Off grief. airport, I know. All right, well, plug the uh, plug the various Indie Chefs Week web pages, social media, all that stuff one more time. So pretty much everything is at Indie Chefs Week, I-N-D-I-E. Uh, the website is IndieChefsWeek.com. If you want to go to the Houston page, it's just slash H-O-U dash 2018. Uh, and everything is there, all the ticketing information, the lineup, all the bios. Um, most of our posting on social media is going to be on Instagram at Indie Chefs Week. And another thing is if you uh, come, Ryan Lashane may take his uh, tooth out for the night. So you get to see that as well. Let's not scare all the guests away. <laughs> uh, and then uh, location TBA. Uh, it's, it's in Midtown. It's a recently closed restaurant space. It's pretty easy to figure out, but I'm trying not to, to, uh, to talk about it just yet. We'll send it all to the guests once they get signed up. But it's right in the heart of Midtown. Easy parking. We have it set up easy for the parking part. I like it. All right. And you can follow me. On Twitter, at E. Sandler. On Instagram, at Eric Sandler. Of course, we always appreciate your... You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and the Google Play Store. Always appreciate the feedback and the ratings. But like Katie Nolan always says, only if they're five stars and only if they're nice. I will be back next week with a very special episode in which all of my usual cast of co-hosts and I will talk about the... Best new restaurants of 2017, our favorite dishes, maybe even uh, some of the places we didn't like so much. So stick around. Thanks so much for listening.